Chapter 3 of Dread, A Tale of the Great Dismal Swamp by Harriet Beecher Stowe. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by William Jones, Benita Springs, Florida. Chapter 3 The Clayton Family and Sister Anne. The family party, which was now ushered in, consisted of Clayton's father, mother, and sister. Judge Clayton was a tall, dignified, elderly personage, in whom one recognized at a glance the gentleman of the old school. His hair, snowy white, formed a singular contrast with the brightness of his blue eyes, whose peculiar acuteness of glance might remind one of a falcon. There is something stately in the position of the head and the carriage of the figure, and a punctilious exactness in the whole air and manner, which gave one a slight impression of sternness. The clear, sharp blue of his eye seemed to be that of a calm and decided intellect, of a logical severity of thought, and contrasted with the silvery hair with that same expression of cold beauty that is given by contrast of snow mountains cut into the keen metallic blue of an alpine sky one should apprehend much to fear from such a man's reason little to hope from any outburst of his emotional nature yet as a man perhaps injustice was done to judge clayton by this first impression for there was deep beneath this external coldness a severely repressed nature of the most fiery and passionate vehemence his family affections were strong and tender, seldom manifested in words, but always by the most exact appreciation and consideration for all who came within his sphere. He was strictly and impartially just in all the little minutiae of social and domestic life, never hesitating to speak a truth or acknowledge an error. Mrs. Clayton was a high-bred elderly lady whose well-preserved delicacy of complexion, brilliant dark eyes, and fine figure spoke of a youth of beauty, of a nature imaginative, impulsive, and ardent, inclining constantly to generous extremes, she had thrown herself with passionate devotion round her clear-judging husband, as the alpine rose girdles with beauty the breast of the bright, pure glacier. Between Clayton and his father, there existed an affection deep and entire. Yet, as the son developed into manhood, it became increasingly evident that they could never move harmoniously in the same practical orbit. The nature of the son was so veined and crossed with that of the mother that the father, in attempting the age-long and often-tried experiment of making his child an exact copy of himself, found himself extremely puzzled and confused in the operation. Clayton was ideal to an excess. Ideality colored every faculty of his mind, and swayed all his reasonings as an unseen magnet will swerve the needle. Ideality pervaded his conscientiousness, urging him always to rise above the commonly received and so-called practical in morals. Hence, while he worshipped the theory of law, the practice filled him with disgust, and his father was obliged constantly to point out deficiencies in reasoning, founded more 
on a keen appreciation of what things ought to be than on a practical regard to what they are. Nevertheless, Clayton partook enough of his father's strong and steady nature to be his mother's idol, who perhaps loved this second rendering of the parental nature with even more doting tenderness than the first. Anne Clayton was the oldest of three sisters and the special companion and confidant of the brother, and as she stands there untying her bonnet strings, we must also present her to the reader. She is a little above the medium height, with that breadth and full development of chest which one admires in English women. She carries her well-formed head on her graceful shoulders with a positive, decided air, only a little on this side of haughtiness. Her clear brown complexion reddens into a fine glow in the cheek, giving one the impression of sound, perfect health. The positive outline of the small aquiline nose, the large, frank, well-formed mouth with its clear rows of shining teeth, the brown eyes which have caught something of the falcon keenness of the father, are points in the picture by no means to be overlooked. Taking her air altogether, there was an honest frankness about her which encouraged conversation, and put one instantly at ease. Yet no man in his senses could ever venture to take the slightest liberty with Anne Clayton. With all her frankness, there was ever in her manner a perfectly defined, Thus far shalt thou come, and no further. Bows, suitors, lovers in abundance, had stood, knelt, and sighed, protesting at her shrine. Yet Anne Clayton was twenty-seven and unmarried. Everybody wondered why. And as to that, we can only wonder with the rest. Her own account of the matter was simple and positive. She did not wish to marry, was happy enough without. The intimacy between the brother and sister had been more than usually strong, notwithstanding marked differences of character. For Anne had not a particle of ideality, since she had a shrewdness and a pleasant dash of humor withal, but she was eminently what people call a practical girl. She admired highly the contrary of all this in her brother. She delighted in the poetic heroic element in him, for much the same reason that young ladies used to admire Thaddeus of Warsaw and William Wallace, because it was something quite out of her line. In the whole world of ideas, she had an almost idolatrous veneration for her brother. In the sphere of practical operations, she felt free to assert, with a certain good-natured positiveness, her own superiority. There is no one in the world, perhaps, of whose judgment in this respect Clayton stood more in awe. At the present juncture of affairs, Clayton felt himself rather awkwardly embarrassed in communicating to her an event which she would immediately feel she had a right to know before. A sister of Anne Clayton's positive character does not usually live twenty-seven years in constant intimacy with a brother like Clayton without such an attachment as renders the first announcement of a contemplated marriage somewhat painful. Why, then, had Clayton, who always unreservedly corresponded with his sister, not kept her apprised of his gradual attachment to Nina? The secret of the matter was 
that he had had an instinctive consciousness that he should not present Nina to the practical, clear-judging mind of his sister, as she appeared through the mist and spray of his imaginative nature. The hard facts of her case would be sure to tell against her in any communication he might make. And sensitive people never like the fatigue of justifying their instincts. Nothing, in fact, is less capable of being justified by technical reasons than those fine insights into character whereupon affections are built. We have all had experience of preferences which would not follow the most exactly ascertained catalogue of virtues, and would be made captive where there was very little to be said in justification of the captivity. But meanwhile, rumor, always busy, had not failed to convey to Anne Clayton some suspicions of what was passing, and though her delicacy and pride forbade any allusion to it, she keenly felt the want of confidence, and of course was not any more charitably disposed towards the little rival for this reason. But now the matter had attained such a shape in Clayton's mind that he felt the necessity of apprising his family and friends. With his mother the task was made easier by the abundant hopefulness of her nature, which enabled her in a moment to throw herself into the sympathies of those she loved. To her had been deputed the office of first breaking the tidings to Anne, and she had accomplished it during the pleasure party of the morning. The first glance that passed between Clayton and his sister as she entered the room on her return from the party showed him that she was discomposed and unhappy. She did not remain long in the apartment, or seemed disposed to join in conversation. And after a few abstracted moments, she passed through the open door into the garden, and began to busy herself, apparently among her plants. Clayton followed her. He came and stood silently beside her for some time, watching her as she picked the dead leaves off her geranium. "'Mother has told you,' he said at last. "'Yes,' said Anne. There was a long pause, and Anne picked off dry leaves and green promiscuously, threatening to demolish the bush. "'Anne,' said Clayton, "'how I wish you could see her.' "'I've heard of her,' replied Anne dryly, "'through the Livingstons.' "'And what have you heard?' said Clayton eagerly. Not such things as I could wish, Edward, not such as I expected to hear of the lady that you would choose. And pray, what have you heard? Out with it, said Clayton. Let's know what the world says of her. Well, the world says, said Anne, that she is a coquette, a flirt, a jilt. From all I've heard, I should think she must be an unprincipled girl. That is hard language, Anne. "'Truth is generally hard,' replied Anne. "'My dear sister,' said Clayton, taking her hand and sitting her on the seat in the garden, "'have you lost all faith in me?' "'I think it would be nearer the truth,' replied Anne, "'to say that you had lost all faith in me. "'Why am I the last one to know of all this? "'Why am I to hear it first from reports, and every way?' but from you. Would I have treated you so? Did I ever have anything that I did not tell you? 
down to my very soul. I've always told you everything. Well, this is true, I own, dear Anne. But what if you had loved some man that you felt sure I would not like? Now, you are a positive person, Anne, and this might happen. Would you want to tell me at once? Would you not perhaps wait and hesitate and put off for, for one reason or another from day to day and find it grow more and more difficult the longer you waited? I can't tell, said Anne bitterly. I never did love anyone better than you. That's the trouble. Oh, neither do I love anybody better than you, Anne. The love I have for you is a whole perfect thing, just as it was. See if you do not find me every way as devoted. My heart was only open to take in another love, another wholly different, and which, because it is so wholly different, can never infringe on the love I bear to you. And Anne, my dear sister, if you could love her as a part of me, I wish I could, said Anne, somewhat softened. But what I've heard has been so unfavorable. She is not, in the least, the person I should have expected you to fancy, Edward. Of all things, I despise a woman who trifles with the affections of gentlemen. Well, but, my dear... Nina isn't a woman. She is a child, a gay, beautiful, unformed child. And I'm sure you may apply to her what Pope says. If to her share some female errors fall, look in her face and you forget them all. Yes, indeed, said Anne. I believe all you men are alike. A pretty face bewitches any of you. I thought you were an exception, Edward, but there you are. But, Anne, is this the way to encourage my confidence? Suppose I am bewitched and enchanted. You cannot disentangle me without indulgence. Say what you will about it. The fact is just this. It is my fate to love this child. I have tried to love many women before. I have seen many whom I knew no sort of reason why I shouldn't love, handsomer far, more cultivated, more accomplished, and yet I've seen them without a movement or flutter of the pulse. But this girl has awakened all there is to me. I do not see in her what the world sees. I see the ideal image of what she can be, what I'm sure she will be when her nature is fully awakened and developed. Just there, Edward, just that, said Anne. You never see anything that is. You see a glorified image, a something that might, could, would, or should be. That is your difficulty. You glorify an ordinary boarding-school coquette into something symbolic, sublime. You clothe her with all your own ideas, then fall down to worship her. Well, my dear Anne, Suppose it were so, what then? I am, as you say, ideal. You, real. Well, be it so. I must act according to what is in me. I have a right to my nature, you to yours. But it is not every person whom I can idealize. And I suspect this is the great reason why I never could love some very fine women with whom I have associated on intimate terms. 
They had no capacity of being idealized. They could receive no color from my fancy. They wanted, in short, just what Nina has. She is just like one of those little, whisking, chattering cascades in the white mountains, and the atmosphere round her is favorable to rainbows. And you always see her through them. Even so, sister, but some people I cannot. Why should you find fault with me? It's a pleasant thing to look through a rainbow. Why should you seek to disenchant? if I can be enchanted. Why, replied Anne, you remember the man who took his pay of the fairies in gold and diamonds, and after he had passed a certain brook, found it all turned to slate stones? Now marriage is like that brook. Many a poor fellow finds his diamonds turned to slate on the other side, and this is why I put in my plain hard common sense against your visions. I see the plain facts about this young girl, that she is an acknowledged flirt, a noted coquette and jilt, and a woman who is so is necessarily heartless. And you are too good, Edward, too noble. I have loved you too long to be willing to give you up to such a woman. There, my dear Anne, there are at least a dozen points in that sentence to which I don't agree. In the first place, as to coquetry, it isn't the unpardonable sin in my eyes. That is, under some circumstances. That is, you mean, when Nina Gordon is the coquette? No, I don't mean that. But the fact is, Anne, there is so little of true sincerity, so little real benevolence and charity in the common intercourse of young gentlemen and ladies in society, and our sex, who ought to set the example, are so selfish and unprincipled in their ways of treating women, that I do not wonder that now and then a lively girl who has the power avenges her sex by playing off our weak points. Now I don't think Nina capable of trifling with a real deep unselfish attachment, a love which sought her good and was willing to sacrifice itself for her. But I don't believe any such has ever been put at her disposal. There is a great difference between a man's wanting a woman to love him and loving her. Wanting to appropriate a woman as a wife does not, of course, imply that a man loves her or that he is capable of loving anything. All these things girls feel because their instincts are quick, and they are often accused of trifling with a man's heart when they only see through him and know he hasn't any. Besides, love of power has always been considered a respectable sin in us men, and why should we denounce a woman for loving her kind of power? Oh, well, Edward, there isn't anything in the world that you cannot theorize into beauty, but I don't like coquettes for all that. And then I'm told Nina Gordon is so very odd and says and does such very extraordinary things sometimes. Well, perhaps that charms me the more. In this conventional world where women are all rubbed into one uniform surface like coins in one's pocket, it's a pleasure now and then to find one who can't be made to do and think like all the rest. You have a little dash of this marriage yourself, Anne. But you must consider that you have been brought up with Mama under her influence trained and guided every hour 
even more than you knew. Nina has grown up an heiress among servants, a boarding-school girl in New York, and furthermore, you are twenty-seven and she is eighteen, and a great deal may be learned between eighteen and twenty-seven. But, brother, you remember Miss Hannah Moore says, or some of those good women I forget who, at any rate is a sensible saying, that a man who chooses his wife as he would a picture in a public exhibition room should remember that there is this difference, that the picture cannot go back to the exhibition, but the woman may. You have chosen her from seeing her brilliancy in society, but after all, can you make her happy in the dull routine of a commonplace life? Is she not one of the sort that must have a constant round of company and excitement to keep her in spirits? I think not, said Clayton. I think she is one of those whose vitality is in herself, and one whose freshness and originality will keep life anywhere from being commonplace, and that, living with us, she will sympathize naturally in all our pursuits. Well, now, don't flatter yourself, brother, that you can make this girl over and bring her to any of your standards. Who, I? Do you think I meditated such an impertinence? The last thing I should try, to marry a wife, to educate her. It's generally one of the most selfish tricks of our sex. Besides, I don't want a wife who will be a mere mirror of my opinions and sentiments. I don't want an innocent sheet of blotting paper, meekly sucking up all I say, and giving a little fainter impression of my ideas. I want a wife for an alternative. All the vivacities of life lie in differences. Why, surely, said Anne, one wants one's friends to be congenial, I should think. So we do, and there is nothing in the world so congenial as differences. To be sure, the differences must be harmonious. In music now, for instance, one doesn't want a repetition of the same notes, but differing notes that chord. Nay, even discords are indispensable to complete harmony. Now, Dinah has just that difference from me, which chords with me, and all our little quarrels, for we have had a good many, and I dare say shall have more, are only a sort of chromatic passages, discords of the seventh leading into harmony. My life is inward, theorizing, self-absorbed. I am a hypochondriac, often morbid. The vivacity and acuteness of her outer life makes her just what I need. She wakens, she rouses, and keeps me in play, and her quick instincts are often more than a match for my reason. I reverence the child, then, in spite of her faults. She has taught me many things. Well, said Anne, laughing, I give you up, if it comes to that. If you come to talk about reverencing Nina Gordon, I see it's all over with you, Edward, and I'll be good-natured and make the best of it. I hope it may all be true what you think, and a great deal more. At all events, no effort of mine shall be wanting to make you as happy in your new relation as you ought to be. There, now, that's Anne Clayton. It's just like you, sister, and I couldn't say anything better than that. You have unburdened your conscience, you have done all you can for me, and now, 
very properly yielded to the inevitation. Nina, I know, will love you, and if you never try to advise her and influence her, you will influence her very much. Good people are a long while learning that, and they think to do good to others by interfering and advising. They don't know that all they have to do is to live. When I first knew Nina, I was silly enough to try my hand that way myself, but I've learned better. Now, when Nina comes to us, all that you and Mama have got to do is just to be kind to her, and live as you always have lived, and whatever needs to be altered in her, she will alter herself. Well, said Anne, I wish, as it is so, that I could see her. Suppose you wrote a few lines to her in this letter that I am going to write, and then that will lead in due time to a visit. Anything in the world, Edward, that you say. End of Dread Chapter 3 The Clayton Family and Sister Anne